Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zora. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa from an African perspective coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on DSTV's Audio Bouquet Channel 802 and on www.channelafrica.co.za. I'm Lulu Gabu in studio with Anne Musa, Tabiso Luhoko and Figile Limwati. In our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at the Sawa. South African minister condemns recent violence against foreigners and UN vows to continue supporting New Sudanese government. In economics news, Zimbabwe's Makomo resources hit by forex shortages. And in sports news, Uganda lift Kosafa Women's Under-17 Championship trophy. But first up, the news with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Musa. South Africa's International Relations Minister Naledi Pando says intolerance remains one of the biggest obstacles to building a world free of poverty and inequality. She was delivering South Africa's statement during the ongoing United Nations General Assembly debate in New York. Pando used the platform to address the recent incidents of violence in which foreign nationals were targeted and had their businesses looted and burned. She has described the violence as shameful and regrettable while reaffirming her government's commitment to fight racism, xenophobia and other related intolerances. Our country, South Africa, has unfortunately not been immune from evidence of intolerance and division in some parts of our nation. The incidents of violence and looting that erupted in parts of our provinces of Gauteng and KwaZulu-Natal were regrettable and shameful for a nation with such a proud history of struggle and international solidarity support. The government of South Africa strongly condemned these tragic actions and is working hard at ensuring we address the security lapses and intolerance that led to this violence. Pando committed to addressing the country's immigration administration and promised to work with all countries, particularly on the continent, to implement development strategies. Our neighboring states in particular and the rest of the countries in Africa made great sacrifices in support of the liberation movements and the oppressed citizens of South Africa. We wish to reiterate that South Africa does not condone any forms of racism, racial discrimination, xenophobia, and related intolerances. Former Zimbabwean President Robert Mugabe has finally been buried in his rural home of Kutama Zvimba in the low-key private ceremony that about 200 people attended. Mugabe died of prostate cancer in a Singapore hospital earlier this month at the age of 95. His burial comes after three weeks of bickering over where his remains would be buried. Our correspondent Ifat Musakiwa has the story. The government has not given a position as to what will happen to the mausoleum that they are constructing for the former president. But uh, the communication that they just issued was that 
they will respect the, uh, the final wishes of the family and they would support the, 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 the family in whatever final wishes that they had. Uh, so we wait to hear what the government is going to do with the mausoleum that they are constructing and what will become of it later. Nigerian President Mohamedou Buhari has called on traditional and religious authorities to work with the government to prevent what he terms the unwanted cultural practices that amount to the abuse of children. Buhari was responding to Thursday's police raid in which several hundred boys and men were freed from an alleged Islamic reform school from the northern city of Kaduna. The detainees say they'd been tortured, sexually abused and prevented from leaving. And finally, the former Ukrainian prosecutor at the Center of Unproven Allegations that U.S. President Donald Trump has been making about his Democratic rival Joe Biden and his son says there's no basis for Kiev to start an investigation into the matter. Trump has cast doubts on Hunter Biden's business activities in Ukraine. The BBC's Jonah Fisher reports. Yuri Litsenko has been the key Ukrainian source for Donald Trump's claims about former Vice President Joe Biden. Earlier this year, he gave several interviews to conservative media in the United States, which fueled the idea that there was going to be an investigation into the business dealings of Joe's son, Hunter, who was then the director of a Ukrainian energy company. Mr. Lutsenko said it was clear that under Ukrainian law, neither Joe or Hunter Biden had done anything wrong. And that's the news. Headlines at 7.30 Central African Time. Follow Channel Africa on these social media platforms on Facebook, Channel Africa One, on Twitter, at Channel Africa One, and YouTube on Channel Africa Radio. Our website, www.channelafrica.co.za. Channel Africa, from an African perspective. One of the biggest obstacles to building a world free from poverty and inequality is intolerance. That was the message delivered by South Africa's International Relations Minister Naledi Pandal. She was delivering the country's statement during the ongoing United Nations General Assembly debate in New York. Sharon Barspeace reports from New York. Naledi Pandal, Minister for International Relations and Cooperation of South Africa. Honorable Minister, please. The country's chief diplomat railed against intolerance in her address to the 193-member assembly. The intolerance of other nations, intolerance towards human beings, particularly women and children, and intolerance against the environment that sustains us all. Our country, South Africa, has unfortunately not been immune from evidence of intolerance and division in some parts of our nation. The incidents of violence and looting that erupted in parts of our provinces of Gauteng and KwaZulu-Natal were regrettable and shameful for a nation with such a proud history of struggle and international solidarity support. The government of South Africa strongly condemned these tragic actions and is working hard at ensuring we address the security lapses and intolerance that led to this violence. We are working tirelessly to tackle crime and lawlessness and to ensure that the arrested criminals face the full might of the law.
Minister Pandor committed to addressing the inadequacy of the country's immigration administration and promised to work with all countries, particularly on the continent, to implement development strategies to increase economic opportunities to counter feelings of resentment and antipathy. Our neighboring states in particular and the rest of the countries in Africa made great sacrifices in support of the liberation movements and the oppressed citizens of South Africa. We wish to reiterate that South Africa does not condone any forms of racism, racial discrimination, xenophobia, and related intolerances. In fact, South Africa has embraced millions of migrants and refugees from all over the continent of Africa, and the majority of our people have warmly embraced their brothers and sisters from the continent. We are determined to ensure that this becomes a national embrace and not one limited to some communities. She warned that dealing decisively with the threats of poverty would fail unless the structure of the global economy was transformed, expressed solidarity with the people of Palestine, Cuba and Western Sahara, while the question of Security Council reform was again raised. We remain gravely concerned that 74 years after founding of the United Nations, key decisions on peace and security are de facto the domain of only five countries. 20 years of discussions of reform of the Security Council have yielded no movement towards a more representative and inclusive body. We believe the time has come for the broader membership to heed the overwhelming call for Africa to obtain at least two permanent seats with all the prerogatives of permanent membership, as well as for the five non-permanent seats as embodied in the common African position adopted as the Ezeluini consensus. In this regard, we have to see an invigoration of negotiations on reform at the intergovernmental negotiations, including by ensuring we move to text-based negotiations. Pointing to a world facing a myriad of challenges, she called for the preservation of the rules-based multilateral system with the UN as its head. Her speech here tops off a week-long whirlwind of high-stakes diplomacy that has sought to reposition South Africa's image on the international stage just as the country assumes the presidency of the UN Security Council for the month of October. Pandor indicated that they would use their tenure to advocate for the peaceful settlement of disputes and inclusive dialogue, embodying the legacy of Nelson Mandela towards the objective of silencing the guns on the African continent by 2020. I thank you, Mr. President. I'm Sherman Bricebees in New York. Events in Sudan have been extraordinary and the establishment of a civilian-led government earlier this month has ushered in a pivotal moment of change and hope for the country. That was the message from the UN Secretary-General during a high-level meeting on the country on the sidelines of the General Assembly in New York. Calls went out from various stakeholders, including the African Union for International Solidarity, that will address the country's dire economic situation in order to achieve a sustainable peace and inclusive development. Sean Barr's piece reports. 
Excellencies, distinguished representatives, I'm very pleased to open this high-level event on Sudan. A historic first trip to the United Nations for Abdallah Hamdok since his installation as Prime Minister, with UN Chief Antonio Guterres acknowledging that the international community had a key role to play in the country's future trajectory. I'm optimistic that under the leadership of Prime Minister Abdallah Hamdok, the transitional government will be able to strengthen governance and the rule of law, uphold human rights and set the country on a path towards economic recovery. This must include addressing the root causes of conflict and achieving inclusive peace, including in Darfur, Blue Nile and South Kordofan. As a chorus of calls for the lifting of all economic and financial sanctions grows, in addition to pressure on the United States to remove the country from its list of state sponsors of terror, Listen to AU Commission Chair Moussafaki. The debt burden is unbearable. Concerted and rapid action from international economic and financial institutions must be put together as quickly as possible to drastically reduce or uh, purely and simply cancel that debt. It is urgent for your development partners and friends to mobilize according to the most effective procedures to achieve this and to open up genuine prospects for economic recovery to alleviate the suffering of the country and to build a robust foundation for peace and stability which will be necessary to make a success of the democratic transition in Sudan. For his part, Sudan's Prime Minister Abdallah Hamdok thanked the UN and the African Union for its support during the transition process, while explaining that the changes underway in his country were deeply rooted, including a drive towards peace with armed groups, particularly in Darfur. Sudan is a very rich country. We don't need handouts. What we need is opening up the country for business, prosperity and all that. And I think working together with our partners, we could achieve that. Reforming state structures and institutions is a top priority. Building solid foundation for the establishment of the rule of law, transparency, accountability, justice, and particularly transitional justice that is firmly linked to the peace process, combating corruption, and addressing issues of the recovery of the stolen asset. We think it's turned in billions. Hamdok indicated that among the main challenges facing his transitional government was managing the expectations of the people of Sudan, particularly around issues of inclusiveness, reviving the economy, especially for young people, with 65% of the population under the age of 24. He also pointed to the priorities of combating corruption, re-establishing the rule of law and the need for transitional justice, but did not explain what that might mean for the future of former President Omar al-Bashir, who is still sought by the International Criminal Court in The Hague. I'm Sherwin Bricepees in New York. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. What we want to achieve is a healthy and vibrant economy which can ensure full employment to our people. The government concurs with the views of the Black Economic Empowerment Council report that it is now necessary to make our policies on Black Economic Empowerment more explicit. Last May, I asked constituencies at NetLab to discuss youth employment incentives. I'm pleased that 
discussions have been concluded and that agreement has been reached on key principles. We are on an ambitious drive to industrialize, to attract investment and to create more jobs for the youth of our country. They don't have jobs. Tried looking for a job for it's a year and a half now. The challenges were experience and the, the level of education which I have. Channel Africa. Libya's Interior Minister Fatih Bashaga has told the BBC that groups including al-Qaeda and the Islamic State will use the current conflict in the country to regroup. The U.S. has carried out two airstrikes in Libya in the past week, targeting IS militants. The conflict in Libya began in April when a rebel military commander launched an offensive to try to take the capital. Since then, the authorities in Tripoli say more than 3,000 people have been killed, including a few hundred civilians. The BBC's Ola Gerin has been to the front line and sent this report. We travelled to the southern edge of Tripoli, now a suburban battlefield. This is the heart of Libya's latest conflict, but foreign players are also involved in what is increasingly another proxy war in the Middle East. From this uh, direction, maybe, maybe 600 uh, meters from uh, uh, this point is a fire line. The commander, Salem bin Ismail, showed us the front line that many have died to protect. He's a veteran of the revolution of 2011 and said he's still fighting to defend democracy. I hope this is the last of the wars. We need ballot boxes and elections. We fought against Gaddafi to get rid of military control. The Libyan people want democracy. Circumstances have made us fight again. He and his men are fighting to defend Tripoli on behalf of the UN-recognized government. It has the support of Turkey and Qatar. They're holding off forces led by a rebel commander, General Khalifa Haftar. He's backed by Egypt, the UAE, France and Russia. Well, the fighting has been grinding on here since April, much of it unseen. But there is active firing taking place today. And what happens on this front line has implications far beyond Tripoli. The fear is that if this conflict continues, it could push Libya into all-out civil war. With the government focused on defending the capital, there's a moment of opportunity for groups including the Islamic State or Daesh, according to the Interior Minister Fatih Bashaga. This is very good chance for Al-Qaeda, for Boko Haram, for Daesh, for organised crime now in Libya. It is very good environment. And they will use this, uh, this chance. They will use it. You know, they can grow now in the desert and they can move. And right now you can't try to fight them because you're defending Tripoli. 
Yes, we continue our activity to uh, uh, capture some of them. We are watching, but inside our area, not outside our area. And we are continue our cooperation with the USA security and uh, British security. We continue, but out of our uh, front line, what we will do. U.S. forces have carried out two airstrikes on IS targets in Libya in the past fortnight in a bid to prevent the militants benefiting from the current chaos. But the longer the conflict continues, the greater the risks for Libya and for the Middle East. Kenya's highest value bank note makes way for a new look 1,000 shilling bill on October the 1st. Three judges of the High Court dismissed petitions last week seeking to stop circulation of the new banknotes. One of the images on the banknotes shows the statue of Kenya's founding president, Jomo Kenyatta. Kenyan authorities said scrapping the old note would be a way of ending the corruption that has deeply entrenched in the country. James Shimangula has more. Bank counters in Kenya are expected to have long queues Today, Monday, the 30th of September, the reason is simple. From tomorrow, Tuesday, all the banknotes will no longer be in circulation in Kenya. The banknotes have been replaced with new ones, which are already in circulation. The circulation of the new banknotes prompted the prominent Kenyan activist Okia Omtata and renowned politician Simon Mbugwa to file petitions in a Nairobi High Court seeking to stop the circulation. Omtata um, and Mbugwa argued before three judges of the court that Kenya's constitution does not allow images of individuals to appear on the new banknotes. It may be appropriate to point out that the statue of Kenya's founding President Jomo Kenyatta is on the new banknotes. Delivering their judgment after hearing submissions from activist Omtata and politician Simon Mbugwa, one of the three judges, Anthony Murima, said images on some of the banknotes are of unidentifiable individuals and therefore do not offend the constitution. Yagi Murima pointed out the following factor that contributed to the dismissal of the petitions. The new currency notes are already in circulation. In view of the majority decision, the final orders shall be as proposed in that judgment. Shortly after the dismissal of the petitions, petitioner Okia Omtata had this to say. Basically, the judges have chosen to dance on a head of a pin. It's more of a political decision than a decision based on law. They are not addressing the spirit of the constitution. They are not interpreting the constitution in a manner that sustains it and develops the law. They are doing it in a manner that frustrates and limits it. They are going to appeal the decision. Kenyan authorities believe that the introduction of the new banknotes is one way of ending large-scale corruption in the country. Justin Onyancha, an independent Nairobi economist, does not agree with the authorities. 
the people who are corrupt, the people who said to be the masterminds of corruption in Kenya, are still the ones who hold the new currency. And I can equate it to someone who just changes clothes but remains who is inside. You can just change your surrounding, change what you do, change your clothes, but if you are corrupt, you're still corrupt. And unfortunately, the people who are corrupt are still the ones on top. So for me, I don't think the change of currency will reduce corruption in Kenya in any way. The use of the new generation banknotes was announced by Kenyan President Uhuru Kenyatta in a bid to fight money laundering and corruption. President Kenyatta promised to stamp out corruption when he was elected in 2013, but his critics say it is still rampant and there have been few convictions since then. Perhaps it may also be important to point out that Kenya is currently ranked 144 out of 108 countries on Transparency International's Corruption Index. In this East African nation of Kenya, where citizens live on $1 a day, corruption comes in two ways, petty and large scale. Petty corruption occurs when citizens are asked for what is now known in Kiswahili as kitukidogo, meaning something small to get service provided. In large-scale corruption, fictitious companies are paid for contracts that they never executed. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is James Shimanyula. The main witness who blew the lid in the corruption and looting of the Crime Intelligence Secret Service account in South Africa has admitted to being involved. Colonel Danajaya Naidu, who is in witness protection, testified at the State Capture Commission in Johannesburg through an audio link from a secret location on Friday. Two weeks ago, Hawk Senior Investigator Gorbus Rolofser testified that his investigation of former intelligence head Richard Mluli, which was based on information from Naidu, was frustrated by senior officials from the South African Police Service and National Prosecuting Authority. It is understood that 45 people, including Police Minister Begi Kele, who was Police Commissioner at the time, will be implicated in Naidu's evidence. Nomalizo Mandel has more. The much-anticipated in-camera testimony by Colonel Naidu did not disappoint. He detailed the events that led to his decision to speak to the Hawks investigator, Gorbis Rolovsen. Naidu admitted to being involved in the looting of the funds. Uh, during my service, yes. uh, myself and various other members were involved in the looting of the funds from the Secret Service account. Mm-hmm. This we did on instruction of uh, mainly General Lazarus. Mm-hmm. Uh, together with General Mbluli, Colonel Hein Barnard. Naidu said that all the looting that was happening in the Secret Service account was at the behest of Mbluli and the unit's finance head, Solomon Lazarus. He said when Lazarus found out that he was not only talking to the Hawks, but that he had revealed things, Lazarus was upset. Naidu then related an incident that can only be seen as intimidation, which took place after his meeting with the Hawks. An unannounced visit from Lazarus and two officials that can only be referred to by code names, where one of them had jumped his security gate. As the car approached, uh, came nearby, I noticed General Lazarus sitting in the front seat. Yes. So he asked me uh, to jump into the car. I jumped into the car chair. Uh, did, you, did you not ask why? 
stage? No, he basically instructed me to, to jump into the car. And who was driving? Uh, FM08 was driving the car chair. Okay. FM09 was sitting in the back seat on the left side. Yes. And I jumped into the right side behind the driver's seat. The hearings have adjourned until Monday, where Colonel Naidu will continue with his testimony in camera. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. Kulitranjoi for Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. Reporting for Channel Africa, I'm Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. Our cutting-edge and hard-hitting journalism leaves no stone unturned, giving you the whole picture every time. George Muhango, Channel Africa, Blantyre. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzeka. In Yaoundi. From an African perspective, listen to Channel African in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja, informing the world about Africa. Join us every day and know what is happening around you. Channel Africa. Ardent supporters of South African traditional music gathered at the Mabato Convention Center on Saturday for the Colorful Traditional Music Awards ceremony. The 14th edition of the South African Traditional Music Awards were nothing short of an indication of how South Africans love their heritage. A number of categories in the prestigious traditional music ceremony increased from 14 in 2006 to 31 this year, with the Eastern Cape Province Maskandi Group scooping the Best Traditional Artist of the Year Award. Murani attended the event and sent us this report. Clad in their traditional regalia, people from far and wide attended this year's edition of the traditional music extravaganza. Many artists were nominated for different categories, but only a few ascended the stage to receive the awards for the deserving craftsmanship. The Best Female Artist Award was scooped by Setswana traditional music song bait Mausilekoma, while the SABC's Simki Tamangrinana walked away with the Best Cultural Electronic Media Journalist Award. Here are Manginana and Maus's reactions, respectively. I am so excited. This is my third Satma Award, and this is my ninth award after working for the SABC for 12 years. For me, this award means black child. It is possible. I am very humbled. Satmas have made me proud. I'm very proud as Mawisi and my crew. We are very much happy. I'm going to take this Setswana forward. Hailing from the Eastern Cape, Maskandi Group Abafana Bakam Kumeni claimed one of the biggest awards of the evening, the best traditional artist, Maneli Simseleku of Abafana Bakam Kumeni. We won best traditional artist of the year. It's the biggest award, this one. Uh, we are very happy uh, because uh, for the love of traditional music, together moving Maskani genre forward. The 2019 edition of the Satmas is the third in a row to be hosted by the Northwest Province Government. MEC for Arts and Culture, Virginia Klapi says the province has benefited from this annual event. There's a lot of money that we have, been, uh, that we have invested in this uh, event and as you can see now our guest houses are full i'm very sure that 
also the petrol stations are, very, are full. So as the, as the department, we are happy that our people has benefited a lot from this sadness. The awards were first held in 2016 with only 14 categories. This year, it has 31 categories. And according to the organizers, tremendous growth has been recorded in the traditional music genre. Satma CEO Jason Feber. The, the fact that the categories have grown is just an indication of how the awards have grown, which is really amazing for us. You know, over the last couple of years, uh, traditional music is obviously popular, but we've really seen a big uptake in the last couple of years in particular, and that's why we've also started expanding on the categories, which really is a great reflection of where um, our local music is and where our local talent is, because the growth has come as a result of the growth in talent and the growth in the music. So it's really a great reflection of traditional music in our country. It is the final installment for the province, and the award ceremony will be hosted by Mpumalanga province next year. Bafetile Mwerani in Mahikeng. Northwest. Our headlines up next with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Musan. The headlines, former Zimbabwean President Robert Mugabe has finally been buried in his rural home of Kutama Zvimba in the low key private ceremony that about 200 people attended. Senegal's president has pardoned the former mayor of the capital city of Dakar, who was jailed for five years in 2018 on corruption charges. And Nigerian president Mohamedou Buhari has called on traditional and religious authorities to work with the government to prevent what he terms the unwanted cultural practices that amount to the abuse of children. Those are the stories making headlines. A new game-changing finance mechanism to end cholera has been announced at the UN General Assembly in New York. The One Wash Fund was unveiled by the Islamic Development Bank and the International Federation of the Red Cross and Red Crescent Societies. The fund will attempt to cut cholera deaths by 90% and improve the lives of 5 million people in 29 cholera-affected countries of the Organization of Islamic Cooperation. Channel Africa's Jane Rabutata has more. According to the IFRC Secretary-General El-Haji Assi, achieving the Sustainable Development Goals or SDGs will require new approaches to programming. The Secretary-General says lack of funding has always been a major issue, but the new financing mechanism launched at the UN General Assembly will help overcome that and ensure that finally cholera is eradicated. One wash will directly and measurably contribute to multiple SDGs, including SDG 3 of Good Health and Well-Being, SDG 5 of Gender Equality, and SDG 6 of Clean Water and Sanitation. Announced at the Financing for Development Dialogues, the fund is a scalable outcome model that uses an innovative funding mechanism designed to attract new philanthropic and private investor capital by combining Islamic social finance contributions with traditional humanitarian donor financing. The fund structure will then be pre-funded through the issuance of an Islamic bond, enabling it to operate at multi-million dollar scale. Latest global estimates show that more than 800 million people do not have access to clean water and more than 2.3 billion people have no access to sanitation. It is therefore estimated that a person is infected with cholera or similar diarrheal diseases every 10 seconds. 
This is despite cholera being a disease that can be easily prevented. Reporting for Channel Africa, I am Jane Rabotata in Johannesburg. Tune in to Vision 2030 with Ona Pateke and Tabila Masugu, the new show revolving around the Sustainable Development Goals and Agenda 2030. Every Tuesday, 10 to 11 a.m. Central African Time. Connect with us on all social media platforms at Channel Africa One, hashtag Vision 2030. The body of Zimbabwe's late former president Robert Mugabe has been buried in his rural village of Kutama after weeks of wrangling between his family and the government over his final resting place. Mugabe died in a Singapore hospital on September the 6th, age 95, almost two years after a military coup ended his 37-year rule. Hundreds of mourners assembled for the low-key event, which was initially intended to be a private family ceremony. For more on this, Maduba Mahlaji spoke to our Zimbabwe correspondent, Efed Musakiwa. Give us a brief report on the main reason why a man of President Robert Mugabe's stature is not buried at the Hero's Acre as expected. Um, according to the family representatives who spoke uh, during the burial ceremony, they indicated that it was his last request that he be not buried at the Hero's Acre, that he be buried uh, there in Kutama where they buried him, and um, that they were just fulfilling the, the former president's last wishes, uh, which he had uh, told his family, which he had told uh, those that were close to him, and that uh, they were happy that the government had actually respected the wishes of uh, former president Robert Mugabe. Uh, one speaker did indicate that uh, Mugabe felt aggrieved uh, right towards the end of his life, and that was one of the reasons he said he had actually opted or preferred that he be buried in his rural home where his people that always stood with him, his people that always were with him even in tough times uh, are found and that's why he decided to be buried there at his rural home. And all the headlines I've read about the funeral say it was indeed a low-key funeral. You were there. Tell us what was the most glaring thing that was missing at a funeral of a former president? Well, um, indeed, it was a low key, uh, but um, again, the family said that that was his wish that he be in the ceremony or the burial process be a private affair where only those that were very, very close to him would be in attendance. There were no government officials. I think there was only a single uh, senior government official who was present. There were no dignitaries to speak of. It was just the family and those that were close to him. I think the gathering had less than, or it was an average of about 200 people that were there at the Mugabe homestead uh, for the burial. Just his uh, family, his close relatives, um, and really no one. I think the only high-ranking official who was there was the minister, uh, the state minister for the province of Marshall and West, and she was the only government official who was there. Uh, politicians, I think we only saw about two uh, opposition politicians that were also in attendance. One of them was uh, Professor Lapmo Maduku, who was always a critic of uh, former President Robert Mugabe. Then uh, another staunch supporter of Robert Mugabe, who now is in the opposition party uh, called the National Patriotic Front, uh, who won a seat in uh, Kwekwe, was also present. And apart from those two, uh, there were no other high-ranking political figures uh, present at the uh, burial. And now, Effort, we understand that a shrine was under construction at the Heroes Acre. Any official word from government on how they feel that the family went this route? 
Well, the government initially, remember when they arrived from Singapore, uh, our president, uh, Emerson Mnangagwa, did indicate that they will respect the wishes of the family. And on Thursday, when the family announced that they now wanted to bury him uh, at his rural home, the government quickly responded and said, we respect those wishes and we will support you in anything that you need to do. And that's the only uh, communication that we've received from the government. But earlier on, as we, when I traveled to Kutama, before I traveled to Kutama, I passed through uh, just close by to just check if there was, uh, they had stopped construction work at the Heroes Acre. But I did notice that the construction work was still under, uh, they were still, it was still underway. They were still uh, constructing there at the Heroes Acre. So we do not know what they are going to do with the mausoleum that they were constructing, what will become of it or what significance it will hold or whether they will initiate. Uh, at the end of the day, stop the construction or they, they haven't communicated to us as to what they will do with the work that they had begun at the Heroes Acre. That's our correspondent in Zimbabwe, Efet Musakiwa, speaking to Matuba Matlachi. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. What we want to achieve is a healthy and vibrant economy which can ensure full employment to our people. The government concurs with the views of the Black Economic Empowerment Council report that it is now necessary to make our policies on Black Economic Empowerment more explicit. Last May, I asked constituencies at Netle to discuss youth employment incentives. I'm pleased that discussions have been concluded and that agreement has been reached on key principles. We are on an ambitious drive to industrialize, to attract investment, and to create more jobs for the youth of our country. They don't have jobs. Tried looking for a job for it's a year and a half now. The challenges were periods and the, the level of education which I have. Channel Africa. As the celebration of Heritage Month draws to a close in South Africa, the country is still battling rampant crime, escalating women and child abuse, and recently also xenophobic violence in parts of Johannesburg. The theme for this year's Heritage Celebration was Reclaiming, Restoring and Celebrating Our Living Heritage. The community of District 6 in the Western Cape province, once demolished by the apartheid government, is slowly being revived and reclaiming its former glory and some believe the symbolism of District 6 can teach others about social cohesion and living together in harmony. Zaline Merrington reports. District 6 in Cape Town has always been a melting pot of races and religions. Here, churches and mosques used to only be separated by a street. Sheikh Ishmael Keran says growing up in District 6 as a youngster exposed him to different cultures. As I grew up in District 6, Friday mornings at school, we were in the chapel. Friday afternoons, we were in the mosque. And that didn't make us a lesser Muslim and a better Christian. I think, to put it in a nutshell, um, I'm so privileged to have such an upbringing in a place like this. It taught us from small the value 
of being human and how to respect humanity. Recently, Kaisergracht Street was renamed to its former name, Hanover Street, where the heartbeat of District 6 is said to have been. Moves are afoot by government to find land to relocate more claimants to the area. Geran adds that this community can teach others about social cohesion. Our common heritage, number one, is we are all South African. South Africa and especially Cape Town and District 6, the melting pot, you know, we have such a rich diversity in us that we should be, we can be and we must be an example to the rest of the world. A few metres away from the mosque is an Anglican church. Reverend Clifford Jones agrees that the example of District 6 can provide guidance to how social relations can be fostered. It's going to be a big, a big, big challenge for us. There is no doubt about that. I mean, to, in to kind of knit this community together again. Um, but District 6 was a sign of that. Um, it, it showed that it can be possible that we can achieve that. Um, it, and I would suggest going forward is, is this whole idea um, for communities to, 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 to work alongside each other again is to, is to, is to start caring and, and, and looking out for each other. Um, we become very individualistic in terms of who we are and, and there's a, you know, a scramble for resources and each one wants to take their cut. Whereas in the past, um, you know, it was about the community in which we live. That report by Zaline Merrington in Cape Town. Our economics update up next with Tavi Soluhoko. A very good morning. Political analyst Takaya Sitole says that some of South Africa's ruling ANC alliance partners are rejecting Finance Minister Tito Mbowene's economic strategy due to fears that it might trigger further unemployment in the country. Mbowene released the economic blueprint last month, 
However, the South African Communist Party and the Trade Federation Kusatu have strongly criticized the plan, saying they were not consulted before its release. Mbowene has also maintained that government should sell some ailing state-owned enterprises. Sitole comments. He's talking about these things, he's having this conversation at precisely the wrong time. So, of course, no political party is going to champion any restructure that says we're going to cut 6,000 or 10,000 jobs in just one entity when you've got the highest unemployment on record in the country. So, of course, the problem here is how do you actually implement some of these reforms without actually accelerating a pre-existing crisis? And this is why you're going to see the resistance coming from the other social partners. With an estimated 390 million people living in extreme poverty, hunger and food insecurity, Africa is in a race against the time to deliver on its regional and global development goals. African heads of state and governments met on the sidelines of the UN General Assembly on Sunday to emphasize urgent collective action and the need for greater collaboration between the United Nations and African Development Bank to foster track Africa's development. The UN Deputy Secretary-General Amina Mohammed says that the meeting convened by the African Development and the United Nations is the first of its kind between the two institutions taking place at the UN headquarters. The Zimbabwean coal miner Marco Morisources is only getting about 50% of its foreign currency requirements for the importation of critical inputs like spares, a situation that has crippled its production. Zimbabwe is struggling to keep its foreign currency reserves afloat despite the establishment of the interbank market early this year to address the situation. About 799 million US dollars worth of currency, foreign currency has been traded on the interbank since its introduction in February this year. The Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia says oil supplies could be disrupted and oil prices rise to unimaginably high numbers unless the world comes together to counter the threat from Iran. In an interview with the CBS program 60 Minutes, Mohammed bin Salman said he would prefer a political solution because war between Saudi Arabia and Iran would ruin the global economy. I believe it's stupidity. There is no strategic goal. Only a fool would attack 5% of global supplies. The only strategic goal is to prove that they are stupid, and that is what they did. You're listening to Channel Africa from an African perspective. A sports update up next with Figile Lingwati. In our sports update this hour, we begin with football news. The star of TS Galaxy, South Africa's Glad Africa Championship, on the continent continues to rise this is after 
the team advanced to the Kev Confederations Cup playoff stage this past weekend. Galaxy overcame a top Malagasy side, Naps FC, beating them 3-1 in the second leg in Antananarivo on Saturday to win 4-1 on aggregate. Sane Lebanz scored a brace after Samgelo Shangase had opened the score earlier for the Mpumalanga base side. Speaking after the, ar- the arrival at the OR Dambo International Airport, Galaxy Chairman Tim Sugazi says the very impressive side that they played against, but the team rose to the occasion. Six Nations champions Wales took a massive step towards topping Pool D with a thrilling 29-25 victory over valiant Australia in the Rugby World Cup. The Wales side were 23-8 ahead at halftime, but they had to withstand a furious second half onslaught when Australia fought back to within a point late in the game. Wales, 43-14 winners over Georgia in the opener, will now be confident of finishing their pool unbeaten with their next opponents, Fiji in Oita on the 9th of October before taking on Uruguay in Kumamoto four days later. Meanwhile, Georgia overpowered Uruguay in a hot and humid Kumagaya to record their first victory of the World Cup. And Fiji in their opening game, Uruguay ended the match with 14 men after Fakudo Gatas was sent off by referee Wayne Barnes for a high tackle two minutes from time. Georgia, who lost their match in their opening game, were no match for the Lelo side that ran in five tries to claim bonus points. The curtain closed on the first ever South African Spring Open tournament last night since South African wheelchair tennis ace Lucas Itole clinched the quad singles final, defeating compatriot Donald Drumpardi 6-4 and 6-3. This was the inaugural edition of the competition that spent over eight days at the Ellis Park tennis courts, where leading domestic players took to the courts in grueling battles with their continental and international counterparts. Sitole shares his joy. I'm feeling great. Uh, especially to win uh, one of the tournaments that I've played at home, you know. It's a good feeling. Uh, yeah, I'm very happy with the result. Uh, this week was a, a good week for me, uh, all in all, uh, singles and doubles. I didn't even lose a, a set or something. I was feeling uh, good and great uh, because I had a, a good uh, preparation leading to this tournament. I had a good run in Europe and then I came back. And then, yeah, and I also I just wanted to win this tournament, you know, just to restore the, the South African uh, crown, you know, to, to stay at home. And I did that and then I'm happy and I also got the point to uplift my ranking. So I'm very happy with this week. A 2013 U.S. Open quad winner and 2016 Australian Open doubles Grand Slam champion, Sitole, now sets his sights on the wheelchair tennis masters set to take place in Florida, USA, in November. It's coming up next for me. I think it's going to be the um, singles masters in Florida, USA, uh, end of November. So I'm looking forward to that. Oh, yes, because I really needed uh, the points uh, to qualify. For, for that tournament because in my category they, they only take uh, top six in the world so winning this tournament is going to help me big time because this is ITF2 so we get a lot of points so I'm happy with the win so I'm looking forward for the singles masters Finally, motor racing Louis Hamilton claimed his first win in four races when he rode his luck to end Ferrari's winning streak with a wild judged strategic victory for Mercedes in a roller coaster Russian Grand Prix. The defending five time champion came home 3.829 seconds ahead of his teammate and nearest championship rival Valtteri Bottas as Mercedes took full advantage of Ferrari's reliability and a technical problem by delivering a solid silver errors 
1-2. Sebastian Vettel, who led from lap 1, suffered a mechanical failure and retired after leading, gifting Mercedes a chance to extend their Sochi supremacy to six wins in succession. That's the Sport News this hour. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Recapping our top stories in Africa rise and shine at the Sawa, South African minister condemns recent violence against foreigners and UN vows to continue supporting new Sudanese government. That wraps up Africa rise and shine today. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producer Pumuzo Ramagaza, technical producer Mario Edwards and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at infochannelafrica.org or tweet us at Africa. Taking us to the top of the hour for the news is Don Laka with a song titled Itlang Sikolo.